Hey kids, how you boys doing? Hey, keep chilling. Looks like me and Vincent caught you boys at breakfast. Sorry about that. You haven't. The podcast. Podcast. The cornerstone of any nutritious listening. What kind of podcast? Oh, film podcast. No, 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 no. Where did you get them? Spotify, Apple Podcast, Jack in the Box. Where? Ah, uh, good pods. Good pods. That's that new podcast joint. I hear they got some tasty podcasts. How are they? Uh, they're good. You mind if I listen to one of yours? This is yours here, right? Yeah. You got five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Oh. Where's the loot? I don't, I don't know who's got the loot. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. Hello, looters! Welcome to special episode 12 of the Movie Loot, the special episodes that come out every other month, where the loot is a specific scene I love from a film I love. I take that scene, break it apart, analyze it, see why it works. If you think this is a cool idea, then make sure you go back and check out our other special episodes, which go from films like Godfather 2 and Silence of the Lambs to Transformers the Movie and Mulholland Drive, among many others. I had been racking my brain trying to choose what film to do, but eventually settled on one that I've had on my mind ever since I started recording these episodes, and it is the iconic scene between Jules Winfield and Brett in Pulp Fiction. But first, a bit of background. Pulp Fiction is a film I saw back in the 90s, not in theaters, but rental, but it was back in the time where it wasn't this big thing it is now, but people were already talking about it, so I rented it and saw it one morning, and... This is the second scene of the film, I think, but it blew my mind so much that I just had to pause the film and pace the room a bit because I just couldn't believe what I had seen. I was so amazed and impressed by that scene that it became one of those that changed the way I view films. Not only because of this scene, the whole movie, but this scene. I think this scene still stands as my favorite from the whole film, which is why I wanted to talk a bit about it. Now be warned, like all my special episodes, this will be an in-depth discussion, so the film will be spoiled. If you haven't seen Pop Fiction, what the heck have you been doing with your life? Stop now and check it out. Then you can come back and listen to the episode. As of now, Pop Fiction is streaming free on Fubo, Showtime, and DirecTV, but it's available for rent on most streaming platforms. So let's begin. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight stain. Pride only hurts, it never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, play the matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of a deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that night. Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in the garage. Take me to it. 
Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Rames, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Looking at something for you. Ain't my friend looking. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. You really thinking about quitting? Most definitely. Of course you're gonna do that. Basically, I'm just gonna walk the earth. What you mean walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. So, to set things up, Pop Fiction is a crime film released in 1984. It is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. The film, which premiered in Cannes, ended up becoming a huge sensation within the Palme d'Or. It was nominated to seven awards at the Oscars, including Best Picture, and won Best Original Screenplay, which was a big thing, considering it was an independent film. The film features an ensemble cast that includes John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Emma Thurman, Bing Rames, Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel, Eric Stoltz, Christopher Walken, Rosanna Arquette, and Amanda Plummer, among many others. It follows multiple storylines told out of chronological order, which include an aging boxer being forced to throw his final fight, a pair of restaurant robbers about to make a hit, a mob boss looking for a valuable briefcase, and the two hitmen tasked with finding it. And that's where we have Travolta and Jackson, because the scene in question, which, like I said before, is the second scene of the film, is when they find a group of young men that have taken this valuable briefcase. And what happens has become one of the most iconic exchanges and scenes in Hollywood history. So to analyze that scene, I'm going to talk about four things. Number one, the setup. Once again, this is only the second scene of the film after a seemingly unrelated scene with a pair of thieves. So Tarantino just drops us in the car with these two men who we don't know. And this is one of those great things that kind of have been lost because of the popularity of the film. Because at the time, you probably weren't entirely sure of who they are. Just two guys talking about trips to Europe and hamburgers. It is only when they arrive at their destination that we realize, oh, they're hitmen, as we see them take out their guns out of the trunk. We should have shotguns with this kind of deal. How many up there? Three or four. That's counting our guy? Not you. So that means it could be up to five guys up there? It's possible. We should have fucking shotguns. So we know they're getting to something big. But then we have this long-winded conversation about TV pilots and foot massage and whatnot as they walk around the apartment building. And I think it's great because it serves to warm us up to these two characters that are essentially killers. But through these mundane conversations, we see them as quote-unquote normal. And this humorous banter between them is a great contrast to the things we will see them do later as they walk into the apartment. And that's when we meet Brett and company. Hey, kids. How you boys doing? Hey, keep chilling. You know who we are? We're associates of your business partner, Marcellus Wallace. You do remember your business partner, don't you? Now, let me take a wild guess here. You're Brett, right? Yeah. I thought so. You remember your business partner, Marcellus Wallace, don't you, Brett? Yeah, I, I remember. Good. 
And that's the second thing I want to talk about, and it's these characters that we meet here. The four or five guys that Jules and Vincent were talking about before. First, we have Marvin, played by Phil Lamar. He's the black kid that opens the door. He has a couple lines, but mostly remains cowering in the corner behind Jules, which keeps giving that constant sense of dread, even when the conversation seems friendly at first. Then we have Roger, played by Burr Steers, also known as Flock of Seagulls. Funny story, I didn't know that Flock of Seagulls was a band at the moment or that it was a reference to the guy's haircut, so that joke went over my head at the time. But anyway, he's the surfer kid with the floppy hair that's laying on the couch. Trivia note, the script had him sitting at the table with Brett, but I think it works perfectly to have him in the couch, leaving our third guy, Brett, alone at the table. Brett is described in the script as a preppy-looking kid, and I think Frank Whaley fits that to a T. He's clearly the one behind whatever they were trying to do, and we get that because of his clothes, his appearance, and his position at the center of the room. And obviously we get that confirmation when Jules identifies him. As far as Vincent and Jules, this scene is pretty much all Jules. Vincent just trolls inside the apartment and stays in the kitchen area while Jules does all the talking and questioning. And most of the tension of this scene comes from two things, Jackson's performance and Tarantino's direction. Which is my third point, the direction. It's amazing to think that this is only the second film directed by this man, but we had already seen him do wonders in Reservoir Dogs, so yeah. But anyway, since the focus of the scene is on Jules and Brad and their whole exchange, Tarantino does a great job of using those two characters and their positions to heighten the tension. He does so mostly by alternating between two shots. There's this shot that's kind of from behind Brett, but it's from a lower angle, as if he had the camera on the floor. So you see Brett sitting and Jules towering in front and above him because of the way the camera is set. It gives that sense of a predator on top of its prey. The second shot he uses is one that's focused on Brett sitting, camera in front of him. But Tarantino smartly still lets you see Jules' torso or arm on the side of the shot. So you can get the notion of his presence again towering over him. Brett feels little as he's sitting there all nervous looking up at this menacing figure. And another cool thing from this last shot is that you can see Vincent in the back, pacing around the kitchen smoking, and that contrast of Marvin cowering in the corner behind Jules with Vincent calmly pacing behind Brett only helps to heighten that dread and that tension of what the hell is going to happen here. But aside from the direction, the dialogue, which is my third point, is so perfectly written and so perfectly delivered by everybody, starting with the fake cordiality and that conversation about hamburgers. Looks like me and Vincent caught you boys at breakfast. Sorry about that. Did you have it? Hamburgers. Hamburgers! The cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. What kind of hamburgers? Cheeseburgers. No, 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 no. Where'd you get them? McDonald's, Wendy's, Jack in the Box. Where? Uh, Big Kahuna Burger. Big Kahuna Burger. That's that Hawaiian burger joint. I hear they got some tasty burgers. I ain't never had one myself. How are they? They're good. You mind if I try one of yours? This is yours here, right? And this goes back to what I said in the first point, on how the scene is set up. But I love how the mundane aspect of the conversation only helps to make things feel more tense. And that goes not only to the dialogue, but to Jackson's excellent performance. He's so funny without being a joker, and scary without being a monster. 
He's like a cat playing with a mouse before eating it. And I love how the conversation even ties to the earlier conversation with Vincent with the Royale with Cheese line. The whole conversation is just so full of funny and iconic little moments. But that fake cordiality starts to break in two moments. First, when they ask for the briefcase. You, Flock of Seagulls, you know why we're here? Won't you tell my man Vincent where you got the shit here at? It's over there. It's... I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. You were saying? It's in the cupboard. You see, Jules asks Roger about the briefcase, but when Marvin interrupts, Jules explodes. This is the first time we see him burst like that in the scene, so it breaks that air of fake cordiality and helps keep us in our toes about what can happen here. And back to Jackson's performance, he has a way of looking at you that, man, it, it's scary. I love that he keeps looking at Marvin as he waits for Roger to respond. But anyway, Roger tells Vincent where's the briefcase, he finds it and opens it, and... And I want to talk a bit about the briefcase. As anybody that has seen the film knows, the briefcase is a MacGuffin. For those that don't know, a MacGuffin is an item, an object, or element on a film that's supposed to be valuable and important to the characters, but that, as far as the audience, it's just a plot device to move the story forward and is ultimately irrelevant. Hitchcock famously used MacGuffins in many of his films, but other important examples are the Maltese Falcon in... Um, the Maltese Falcon, the rabbit's food in Mission Impossible 3, or the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. In Pulp Fiction, we never know what's inside the briefcase, but only that it is of great importance to its owner, Marcellus Wallace, so much that he's willing to kill for it. When Vincent opens it, there's a bright yellow glow coming from it to highlight its value. Tarantino has said that they thought of having gold or jewels in it, but eventually decided not to show it in order to make it more mysterious. For practical filming purposes, there is a light bulb that the actors could turn on when opening the briefcase. But for metaphorical purposes, a lot of people have argued that what's in the briefcase is Marcellus Wallace's soul, which he sold to the devil in exchange for success in the criminal underworld. That's why he has the band-aid in the back of his head, because that's how they extracted the soul out of him, and that's why the combination to open the briefcase is... But that's all fun theory and speculation, obviously. Other theories include Elvis Presley's gold suit from True Romance, which was written by Tarantino, or an Oscar. But to get back to it, the point is that what's inside the briefcase is not important, and that's why it's a MacGuffin. So we get that interruption in the cordiality with the scream at Marvin. The second time that cordiality breaks is as Brett is trying to explain what happened. Look, I'm sorry, uh, I... I didn't get your name. I got yours, uh, Vincent, right? But but I, I never got your My name's Pitt, and your ass ain't talking your way out of this shit. No, no, no. I just want you to know how... I just want you to know how sorry we are that, that things got so fucked up with us and, and Mr. Wallace. It, 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 we, we got into this thing with the best intentions, really. I never... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions? What's the matter? Oh, you were finished? Oh, well, allow me to retort. You see, 
It's funny that we don't know the details of what happened between Brett and Marcellus, how they get entangled with him and how they manage to get a hold of this briefcase, because it seems so jarring to have this powerful mob boss on one side and this group of dumb college kids on the other, but I think it works perfectly. And to hear Brett try to explain what happened, trying to tone down his nerves and talk his way out of it, well, it's something. But the moment of truth comes when Jules shoots Roger. It's such an out-of-nowhere moment that I remember I literally jumped in my seat when it happened. That's when you know this is for real, both Brett and Marvin, and we as the audience. No more conversations about hamburgers and whatnot, because now is the moment that Jules really cranks it up to 11. And this is where we get perhaps the most memorable exchange of the scene. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. My Sarah Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. I mean, to write something that's both so menacing and terrifying and funny, it takes skill. Because you see, Brett is reacting pretty much like any kid that's in over his head will react. Nervous, afraid, insecure, stuttering. But the constant rat of questions from Jules is again not only incredibly written, but perfectly delivered by Jackson. I mean, it's witty dialogue, but it's not the same to have someone else read what does Marcellus Wallace look like than to have Samuel L. Jackson say, what does Marcellus Wallace look like? It's just a non-stop, relentless back and forth of great lines and great delivery. Paired with the direction that I mentioned with the camera behind Brett's back and Jules' figure arching over him, it's iconic for a reason. But then we have the passage with which Jules closes out his executions. Ezekiel 25, 17. You read the Bible, Brett? Yes! Well, there's this passage I got memorized. So it fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. And this is another iconic moment in the scene, one that most people recognize. The truth is that the Ezekiel part only accounts for the last part of the passage, which in the King James Version Bible reads, And I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. 
The rest of the passage comes from a Japanese martial arts film from 1976 called Karate Kiba, or The Bodyguard, which stars Sonny Chiba, one of Tarantino's idols, who would later go on to star in Kill Bill. The passage can be heard three times in the film, here, towards the middle of the film, when we revisit the scene from the perspective of the guy that's hiding in the bathroom, and finally in the last act where Jules recites it again to Ringo in the diner. And it's great to see the difference in how he reads it. Here, where he says it just because he thinks it's a cold-blooded thing to say to a motherfucker before popping a cap in his ass. And in the end, after he's had his moment of clarity. But at this moment, he just wants to pop a cap in Brett's ass, and they do. And going back to the direction, that shot of Jules' face as he turns around reciting the final line of the passage. That's just another one of those chillingly iconic moments that just sticks with you. I want to close this analysis with just a breakthrough of the aftermath, my fourth point. Obviously, they kill Brad, but we find out later that there was a fourth guy hiding in the bathroom. He comes out with a big gun, I think it's a magnum, and shoots at them but misses completely, which Jules sees as a miracle. That's his moment of clarity, and he decides to walk away from crime, which in turn means that Vincent will have to work alone for the moment, which gives a bit more weight to what will happen to him eventually. Marvin, on the other hand, goes with them, but ends up with his head blown to bits, accidentally, mind you, by Vincent as they were driving. This in turn leads to them having to stop at Jimmy's house, changing their clothes, and ending up at the diner where the film both starts and ends. So, those are my thoughts on that great and iconic scene from Pulp Fiction. And it's something that Tarantino has become famous for, these tense, dread-filled conversations between characters. He did it here, he does it in Kill Bill several times, most notably with the final conversation between the bride and Bill. He does it in Glorious Bastards with that great opening scene, and then with the scene in the basement bar. The dinner scene in Django Unchained with a great performance from DiCaprio. And he does it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I love how in that one, he subverts his own trope by having it not necessarily descend into death and chaos. And I'm thinking specifically about the whole Span Ranch scene where you kind of think things are going one way, but they don't. And I thought that was genius. But all of those are just examples of Tarantino building up on what he achieved with this scene between Jules and Brett, a scene that has become the source of endless homage, imitations, gifs, and memes for a reason, but that most importantly serves to set the stage of this crazy journey we're going to be taking with these characters for the next two hours. And that's the thing, because as much as I love this scene, the whole film is full of great moments, great exchanges, witty dialogue, and more iconic scenes. So as usual, I went and asked my friends on Twitter to let me know what is their favorite scene or moment from the film. And this is what I got. Daddy Lumber from Nostalgia Cast said, Any scene with Harvey Keitel as the wolf is like a dessert after everything that's came before it. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. And I agree, I said to him that in a film so full of great moments and great characters, Keitel might pass unnoticed, but he really has a momentous presence during that part. He's, he's great. My friend Tim Doherty said, I think one of my favorite moments is when Vincent has Jap Mia back to life and returned her home barely alive. He's standing in the entry with one hand over his heart like he's about to die, emotionally and physically spent. She finishes her joke, he blows her a kiss. And I also agree, it's such a uniquely charming moment from someone that's not supposed to be charming, and yet we feel sorry for them because despite whatever connection we might feel between these two characters, Mia and Vincent, we know there's no chance for this to move forward. It's a very poignant little moment in a film that doesn't have much of that, which is why it feels so refreshing. 
So that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of The Movie Loot. If you like this breakdown and have any thoughts to share, look me up on Twitter at my personal account at TFCGT or the podcast account at TMML2021. The podcast is stream-free on all podcasting platforms, with the operative word being free. But if you want to support the show monetarily, we have a coffee page, which you can find in our link tree. Go to our Twitter page and you'll see the link. Any help we can get to keep the show going will be greatly appreciated. Also, stay tuned for our next two episodes. One will be the June loot, where I will talk about all the films I saw in June. And then we'll have the Western loot, which was already recorded, where me and my friend Tyler will talk about the Wild West. So stay tuned for that and much more. In the meantime, there's this passage I have memorized, sort of fits the occasion, Ezekiel 25:17. The path of the podcaster is beset on all sides by the inequities of bad listeners and the tyranny of evil podcasters. Blessed is he who, in the name of charity and goodwill, shepherds his followers through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his podcast keeper and the finder of lost listeners." And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my looters. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my podcast upon thee. Oh.